Hello and welcome to My Roots Are Showing with myself, Nadina Regan. This is the podcast where our guests pick out the tunes that mean a great deal to them and they tell us about their lives. Coming up, I'm going to be joined by Shirley Manson, the front woman of the indie rock band Garbage, who of course have sold over 17 million albums worldwide and who've recently re-released their landmark album version 2.0 as it celebrates its 20th anniversary. Garbage are about to kick off a major tour, starting off at Electric Picnic in Ireland and taking in dates across Europe, the US and Mexico. I wanted to interview Shirley Manson because I admire her. Simple as that. Garbage as a band mean a great deal to me, and particularly to the younger version of me, my teenage self, who back in the 1990s was constantly in search of good indie rock music. I don't know if you remember back to those days, but it was harder then. There was no Spotify, there was no internet, and often the only way you could access alternative music was via a very small number of radio shows and TV shows. I still remember wandering past the little boxy TV that we had in our study at home in West Cork and turning to see this video on the screen. And it was from a band I'd never heard of before, a band called Garbage. The front woman was a magnetic presence. You couldn't take your eyes off Shirley Manson. As far as I was concerned, she looked like a creature from another planet. But of course, the funny thing is about Shirley Manson, even though she is incredibly famous, she's also unbelievably down to earth, as I think we've all found out through the magazine cover features that she's done and the band have done over the years. She was raised in Edinburgh in a very normal family. She joined a couple of bands, but she was suddenly catapulted into the international spotlight when a supergroup of producers, including Butch Vig, who only went and produced Nirvana's Nevermind, for God's sakes, they spotted her on MTV and they invited her to join their new band. Over the years, that band, Garbage, have had major hits. Tracks like Only Happy When It Rains, Cherry Lips and Stupid Girl. And they've had tough times as well. Times when they've gone on hiatus. Times when it has looked like the band might never have reformed at points. But they always have, and they've always remained true to themselves. Coming up, Shirley will be talking about her heroes. About artists and bands, about people like Sinead O'Connor, about the Blue Nile, about Susie and the Banshees, and we'll be playing snippets from those artists. She'll also be talking about the issues that affect her, the Me Too movement, what it's like being famous over decades, and how she lives her life now. But before we go to Shirley and to the interview that we recorded from her home over the line in Los Angeles, let's hear a little snippet from Garbage's music. Taken from the newly re-released album, version 2.0, this is I Think I'm Paranoid. Yeah. 
Shirley Monson's on the phone. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I am very well and delighted to be given the opportunity to speak to you. I've been a fan of yours since the early days, since Queer first appeared on my screens back in, I think it was kind of two channel land back in West Cork. And you guys seemed like the oddest, coolest band on the planet. I remember that black and white video. But it's been a long road. And is it odd to hear the sound now of a track like I Think I'm Paranoid uh, coming 20 years after you released it? Yeah, I mean, never in my wildest dreams did I think that I would have a career this long, you know, that the band would stay together this long. I mean, it's, it really is pretty surreal and a great surprise. Um, and, and I guess, you know, we're proud, you know, to, to have survived this long and so many people loving on this record and yeah, I mean, it's, but it's surreal. It's definitely surreal. <laughs> when you think back to those early days, you were plucked, I mean, obviously you were in another band as well, but you were plucked from, I suppose, what some people would see from an international perspective as kind of fairly obscure beginnings to be asked to join a band that felt like a super band because, of course, Butch Vig was involved in the project and he had produced... Nirvana's Nevermind. So he was a very big deal indeed. And can you cast back your mind to that time and to what it felt like when, for the album, before this particular album, you suddenly became part of Garbage, the lead singer? Well, I mean, I can remember it as though it was yesterday. I mean, it was a profound sort of bolt from the blue, you know, for anyone. I mean, you're in the same position as me. You come from a small island, you know. For a Scottish person to get called up by an American... In those days before, you know, the internet, before social media, it really felt like the large hand of fate was coming across the Atlantic, you know, to touch me. And it felt profound and it felt exciting. I knew who Butch was. I knew his work. I knew all the bands that he had worked with. Um, Not just Nirvana, but there was a whole plethora of other acts that I loved, you know, whether it was Smashing Pumpkins Mm -hmm. or Sonic Youth. You know, he just had this incredible history of working with these amazing bands. So when I got the phone call to go and and have the opportunity to meet him for his new project, it was extraordinary. He had seen you in a video. You were playing with Angelfish at the time and he saw you on MTV's 120 Minutes. So it was just completely random, wasn't it? It was really random, although to be fair and to correct history, it wasn't Butch that noticed me. It was actually Steve Marker, the guitarist in Garbage, Mm -hmm. who was watching... Uh, 120 minutes in the US on MTV um, late at night. He's an he's a infamous sort of night owl, and he was staying up late and he was watching this show. And my band from Scotland, Angelfish, got played once at literally two in the morning or something yeah. mad like that. And Steve was like, "She's got an interesting voice," and he drew the rest of the band's attention to me. And actually, I think apparently, which I've just discovered recently, Butch wasn't that into me. And it was the other two who pushed for me. So I got the gig in the end. So <laughs> but it, it was really random. Yeah, and actually when you first appeared on the scene, there was kind of a visual disconnect between you and the others. You know, they would always kind of skulk around the background and maybe sometimes posing as, I don't know, customers in a shop or guys in an elevator, whereas you were so clearly to the fore. Did you relish that as being like, completely the centrepiece of garbage or did you at times wish that maybe the other guys would have 
you know, leapt up a little bit more to occupy some of the spotlight? I mean, I still feel like I wish they would leap up a little more, you know. <laughs> um, and, no, and I know. It, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's not always easy. I think, I think people think somehow that it's the greatest thing, you know, to happen to you when you sort of dominate the landscape. But it's, you know, I didn't welcome that particularly. I was really good at it by default. You know, I was... I grew up in clubs, you know, I was a, a show-off, you know, that was just who I was. I was a dancer, a club girl, I loved, you know, fashion, I loved clothes, I loved makeup, I loved visuals, you know, I, that was just something I was fascinated with and wanted to bring to my career. Um, I didn't understand really that it would it would dominate my band, you know, and... You know, it's not been easy for us over the years because I get a lot of attention, you know, as a result. And But there's nothing really we can do about it. It's not like the other three want to be up front mm. or, or being sort of, you know, loud or, or, or drawing attention to themselves. So it's just a dynamic that we are stuck with, you know, whether we, <laughs> whether we like it or not. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, let's start off your playlist and to a band where I think it's fair to say the women always got all of the attention. Uh, I'm kind of surprised you picked this one. It's a great track but a surprising track from you. It's ABBA with Waterloo. Why have you gone for it? Well I went for Waterloo because it's the first song that I can really remember as a kid falling madly in love with during the Eurovision Song Contest. Ah with my sisters and my mom and my dad. And it was just a really sort of bright, strong memory that I carry from my childhood of us all sitting around a tiny little television set, you know, in the early 70s. I think it was a black and white TV, actually. And watching the Eurovision Song Contest, falling in love with ABBA, following their career after that. So when I hear this song, I think of my sisters, I think of singing with my family, I think of, you know, Sunday dinners, I think of just delicious things. And so it's a song that is really evocative for me of my early childhood. Shirley, we were chatting a little bit about the early Edinburgh days and then the move, of course, uh, to become part, the front woman of this huge band, Garbage. Did you feel a great sense of divide coming from Edinburgh where I guess things would have been a little bit more down to earth and then morphing both into this huge star but also being maybe geographically very distant from your loved ones. Yeah, I mean, it was not easy, to be honest. It's never been easy. It's still not easy. You know, I still feel like an alien in my band. I'm always going to be the odd person out of of this sort of (laughs) strange little universe that I inhabit but it was difficult being away and you know you forget that back then in the 90s we had no mobile phones I couldn't really afford to phone home from a landline I was so cut off and so removed in ways that I think people don't really you know think about now you know Mm. it's the culture has changed so much yeah and as well as that you were the only girl in the band and was that a lonely position? Yeah. You know, whenever you're the only one, that's hard. You know, I can't, I can't lie. And I'm a lot younger than the rest of my band, you know, mm. and they're really tight. They're they're really good buddies. And 
they definitely interface with the world differently than I do. So, yeah, yeah, I would say it's been a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, were there ever times when you turned to, I don't know what form of, did you have a CD player or a record player, but were there ever times when you turned uh, to look at your music collection and thought, you know what, I'll feel a little better about myself, I'm going to put on some Scylla Black? Well, no, I picked Scylla Black because, for a couple of reasons, my mum was a singer and she imbued me with a love of music and that love of music has sustained me through every hard time, every joyous occasion. You know, music plays a large role in my life and so I always associate that gift with my mother. And very recently I was asked to write a, a letter of love to the LGBTQ community and I had this sudden epiphany when I was writing this letter that my mum had introduced me to this wonderful song, I Can Sing a Rainbow by Scylla Black, when I was really little. And in that moment of writing this letter to the LGBTQ community, I suddenly realised the relevance of this song to, you know, just accepting people for who they are and, and what they mean and everyone's equal. And I don't know, it just suddenly was like, I, I started crying writing this letter, remembering my mum singing this song. It was one of her favourite songs. And uh, so whenever I think about this song, I think about my mum and I think about her love of humanity and her egalitarian attitude to human beings of all races, all genders, all sexes. Just it's a wonderful, beautiful song at a time, you know, right now where a lot of people are under siege. And so I thought this would be a great choice. Orange and yellow and purple and green Orange and purple and blue Red and yellow and pink and green Orange and purple and blue I can sing a rainbow Sing a rainbow Silla Black there, as picked out for us by Shirley Manson of Garbage. Shirley, you said something actually that in an interview recently enough that kind of stuck with me. You were talking a little bit about some of your musical heroes, people like, I suppose, well, bands like Susie and the Banshees or artists that you grew up with and really saw as a source of inspiration. And you almost said slightly ruefully in the interview that you had sold or the band Garbage had sold a lot more copies than some of your musical heroes. And that almost felt like wrong to you. In your heart, do you feel very much as though you belong in kind of an alternative world and the success of Garbage? Because as far as I can see, version 2.0 went to, went on to sell like more than, what, four million copies? And it was massive. Uh, did this, that success almost catch you by surprise in, in a strange way? No, absolutely. I mean, again, casting our minds back to the mid-90s, you know, it was the sort of, it was a moment in music culture where alternative bands were selling truckloads, and that's never happened since, mm -hmm. you know, and it certainly hadn't happened before. And I definitely come from an alternative mindset. I mean, I grew up in, you know, that sort of counterculture, 
and I've always been attracted to counterculture. I've never been a great fan of the mainstream. And so to find ourselves, you know, in a position where we were attracting the attention of the mainstream and I was being invited to grace the covers of fashion magazines and newspapers all over the world, that was a a great surprise, you know, and, and still remains a surprise to me, actually. I mean, we got incredibly lucky. You know, I watch bands now emerge and they get all this sort of attention and then the attention moves on to the next young, bright thing. And they're sort of left, you know, holding down three jobs and, and touring, yeah. you know, the the world in a transit van and never seem to get beyond that. And that's tough, you know, that's a really tough place for a band to be because the world's media is focused on the stars who sell massive truckloads of records. They're not interested really in a, in a counter position. Hmm. You have Susie and the Banshees on this list. Uh, what would you like to play from them? Oh my God. Um, I, I mean, my favourite all-time song by Susie and the Banshees is Drop Dead Celebration. So you can play that if you like, or you can play Happy House. It's, a, it's up to you. <laughs> I mean, I'll take any Susie and the Banshees song, quite frankly, because I love them so much. Drop Like, we're talking about musical heroes. Did you meet many when you started the touring? Because when I think of you guys, and I remember it so kind of viscerally seeing you on our screens and just thinking, wow, this is the coolest band with the coolest sound. But you were touring around the time when grunge was sort of petering out a little bit. Uh, Britpop was coming up in a big way uh, through the 90s. And there was also that kind of dancey scene in England as well. So there was a huge amount going on in the charts. Q magazine was extremely successful. The likes of The Enemy, like people were buying music and it felt like people were very invested. So for you, what were the most exciting points of that? The whole thing was exciting. I mean, I met all my heroes. I've met them all. (laughs) <laughs> everyone I ever fantasised about um, anyone I ever fell deeply in love with in any major way so David Bowie I had the I met David Bowie yeah I, had, I mean I, I met Susie Sue I met Patti Smith I met Iggy Pop I mean I met everyone I've ever loved and it was extraordinary you know um, and played on festivals with, with my amazing peers whether it was the Beastie Boys or Sonic Youth or Hole I mean Missy Elliott, it was just just outrageous, you know, it was an outrageous time in music and as you said so rightly, so eclectic, you know, Mm. and that's what made it so extraordinary. At the same time though, the commercial pressures must have been fairly intense. Uh, Behind the scenes, bands were being primed only to release records that would shift enormous amounts of units, if you like, and did you find yourself fighting against that? Well... You know, it, it's hard to explain because obviously you're delighted. When you start selling records in any major way, it's exciting. It just feels exciting and 
and outrageous. <laughs> and so it was hard to be cynical about that. And yet I very quickly realized it didn't matter how well we were doing. There was always someone who would be doing better. Mm. And our record label expected us to compete at that level. So, you know, but, and what I mean by this is we could be selling 25,000 records a week, which we thought was phenomenal and, out, and, and extraordinary. And looking back is phenomenal and extraordinary, but our record labels weren't happy and were constantly saying, well, we need you to sell 35,000 copies a week because that's what Alanis Morissette's doing. Yes. <laughs> and it just was insane. It was insanity. And I very quickly realized, oh, my God, I'm, it's like being trapped in an elevator with madmen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, this is sick. And, and, and it's robbing me and my band of our our joy in making music you know yeah. became we became like widgets that were getting sold you know in a supermarket and it became less and less about the joy of of exploring and 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 creating and instead became about us going out on the road like i don't know like street sellers and and selling our wares and i didn't like that feeling i i, I felt it was really gauche and and i, I felt embarrassed mm. and did you experience pressure as well to do the kind of girly mags you know at the time again the likes of FHM and all that would have been huge and you know if Take That and so on were doing their videos underneath showers I have no doubt that you know similarly women in bands were also being asked to maybe do photo shoots that they might not have been comfortable with oh I was always being asked to take my clothes off <laughs> always and I'm very grateful that I mercifully had the wherewithal not to allow that to happen. Mm. I just was like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. (laughs) So I was able to stand up to the pressures, but I still felt the pressure, which isn't a nice feeling at all. You know, you feel like you're disappointing people. You feel like you're being a diva. You feel like you're being a brat. You know, it's just not a particularly nice place to be. No. Well, let's go now to a lady who has done a very good job and particularly did a very good job in the 90s of withstanding certain pressures. Uh, Sinead O'Connor. You have Sinead O'Connor on this list with Troy. Why Sinead? Well, first of all, I don't think Sinead's done a very good job of of dealing with the pressures. I mean, I suppose in regard to the 90s, I'm kind of thinking more of the Saturday Night Live stuff when she tore up the picture of the Pope, which actually was a huge... um, was a hugely significant uh, event at the time, and she was really reviled culturally for having done that. Uh, but in recent years, of course, yeah. history I mean, has come to seem yeah. like a very brave and prescient move. Well, she, yeah. I mean, where do I start with Sinead O'Connor? First of all, the first time I heard her sing, it felt like I was being enveloped in soft angel's wings. You know, I, I just was so moved by the way she sang and then I saw how she looked and she had this shaved head and she was non-conforming and I felt a kinship you know I was like this person's singing for me she's my warrior she's my Joan of Arc and then of course as I watched her career she became increasingly bold and really fought against the system and to her detriment, of course, um, you were talking earlier about her appearing on Saturday Night Live in America and mm. tearing up a picture of the Pope. And she was protesting, of course, something incredibly serious that desperately needed to be addressed, um, the abuse by the, the, you know, the Catholic Church mm. of, of children. And it was an extraordinary event. And she was reviled in America. And it 
arguably killed her career, mm. you know. And regardless of all that stuff, she continues to make records that interest me and mm. she continues to sing like a, a a creature not from this world, you know. And, and I have the utmost respect for her and the most love for her in my heart. And it kills me to see that she's not being properly taken care of. I mean, mm. she's an extraordinary talent, clearly very fragile. And I don't really understand why the world would prefer to listen to, I don't know, like some stage school kids when they could be hearing from a great. You know, she's a great. Now we'll return The phoenix from the Sinead O'Connor there with Troy. We were talking a little bit about, I suppose, success. And you had so much success with Garbage, with the albums, the touring. You got bigger and bigger. But at a certain point, you guys decided to call it a day. Why was that? Well, we didn't ever decide to call it a day. We decided to take a break. A break. And that break a long break. rolled. And How long was the break? Yeah. Well, it ended up rolling into about five years. Yeah. Um, for a lot of different reasons, not least um, my mother was dying and so yeah. I didn't want to make music, essentially. Um, and, yeah, there was a lot of, of difficulties in all our lives. We all lost people and friends of ours lost children and, oh, my God, it was like the darkest period of my life thus far. Um, but, we yeah we just took a break we just couldn't handle the the unpleasantness of the music industry and we removed ourselves from it and i'm really glad we did it was mm-hmm. the smartest decision we ever made which was let's take a break from here yeah. because we knew that even if we made sergeant pepper's you know lonely hearts club band 2 the the world would still denigrate it <laughs> we just realized we were out of of step with with culture and that happens to artists. It happens mm. to every artist in their career at some point. Um, it even happens, you know, to the great Bob Dylan, you know. So we took a break and and we sort of regenerated and reconnected with just the simple pleasure of making music. Where did you live at that point? I was living in LA at this point. I moved to LA. And was that when you went to, uh, around the same time that you went to Gwen Stefani's baby shower? and met the producer who would put you into uh, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Yeah, that's right. Amazing. <laughs> it's, it's an unbelievable story, you know, I mean, just as mad as it gets. It's sort of a typical Hollywood sensational episode. But Gwen and I, you know, have been pals for for years and years and years. We met very early on in the sort of mid-90s, and we love each other. And, yeah, she invited me to her baby shower, and, and I met Josh Friedman, who was the, the showrunner and developer of... Sarah Connor Chronicles and he said I think you'd make an amazing Terminator <laughs> um, would you be interested in acting and I was kind of like yeah yeah that'd be awesome you know not thinking for one second that he'd ever call me up again and he did and uh, I ended up doing yeah 18 episodes of something mad on a massive Fox show and got to 
be on the Warner Brothers set every day and so I had cool. my own little car park space and it was cool. Yeah, and did you decide a little bit at that point that you didn't necessarily need to be a singer and songwriter all the time, that acting could possibly become a bigger deal in your life because you know there were people who were looking forward to more solo material for you, from you and you were actually a little bit like oh you know maybe I don't need to go constantly in the direction of music in order to find satisfaction in my life. No I can't say that I ever felt that I mean I, I've always been I'm a musician you know and I think doing the TV show made me realize I'm a musician that's what I burned to do mm. it's what I was meant to do I'm good at it you know the acting thing was interesting and I definitely got better at it but the waiting around and the learning of the lines and stuff like okay. that I was like this is hard work I mean being a musician is when it goes well is so easy in some ways and yeah. so I always want to make music that's my primary but if I ever got asked to do some acting again I would jump at the chance you know I think if you're a creative person doing different things is really good for you I can't imagine anyone saying no to the prospect of becoming a Terminator. It sounds like just the most amazing thing ever. Uh, well, we're going to talk <laughs> a little bit more about Garbage and the return, of course, to Irish Shores. But before we do, you have a track on this list from a band who are one of my favourite bands of all time, The Blue Nile. And you've gone for a, a beautifully calm and tranquil number from them. Although, in fairness, most of their tracks are beautifully calm and tranquil. <laughs> this one is called Stay. So why this one? Well, it's the sound of Scotland as I was growing up. You know, this, this, the Blue Nile were one of the first bands I can remember that were purebred Scots. You know, this was a band that came out of Scotland. It was a band that was loved by Scotland and revered by Scotland. And then the rest of the world followed suit. And they were making records that sound like no other band I've ever heard before. They have a very unique mm. landscape that I think is, you know, quintessentially them. And nobody else has ever been able to hold a torch to it. They do something very specific. And and I admire them for that. And I love just the melancholy feel, the universe in which you step into when you listen to the Blue Nile. She loves the music box for from the Blue Nile. Shirley, you are coming to Ireland to perform at Electric Picnic and tell us, like, is Ireland kind of a good spot in your opinion for gigs? Like, do you like coming here? I know you're kind of forced into saying yes, but, you know, do you think the Irish audiences are a strong bunch? Well, you know, the great tragedy of all of this is we haven't been back to Ireland since version 2.0. No way! And... Yeah, that's 20 true. years. Because, yeah, 20 years. And uh, we were told it was because nobody was interested, <laughs> basically. Um, and so it's but, been a bit of a heartbreak for me. I've always never understood why we can play all over the world, literally, and just never get asked back to a country nonsense. that sits... <laughs> 
a country that sits right next to mine, you know, and I feel like I've always had a, I feel like the Scots and the Irish are sort of bound together in some funny way. And so I've always sort of felt like Ireland is a bit of an extension of my home, you know, yeah. and I, and it used to kind of frustrate me and break my heart. And I was always asking management, I was always asking our agent, like, why are we not going to Ireland? You know, why are we not being asked back? And I was always given the same answer. Oh, then nobody's interested. No promoter wants to bring you over. So we're excited about returning, you know, yeah. 20 years is a long time. And I mean, I would prefer that we were coming to play our own shows. I know a lot of our Irish fans have expressed real disappointment in the band and frustration. But, you know, we are an independent band and an independent mm -hmm. label that we fund ourselves. And every choice we make has to be a careful one due to how we balance our books. You know, it's really hard nowadays for bands who are not making pop music mm -hmm. to exist. It's a reason why we don't see a lot of bands anymore, you know, why the band, the concept of a band beyond the first record is sort of dying out. You know, bands can't sustain careers because it's economically really, really complicated mm -hmm. and difficult. So, yeah, disappointment at not being able to come and play for the fans and play our own show, but also excitement at coming to play such a, a great, strong festival lineup. Mm -hmm. And um, it's going to be the first show of these, anniversary celebrations and I'm nervous and excited Let's play a track from your own band now Where would you like to go? Um, well I don't know That that's kind of your call I mean I, I love all my songs so that's like asking King well, Solomon to choose between the two children well, we, did, <laughs> we did mention this earlier before uh, we started recording but actually my favourite track of yours is a track called Cherry Lips I don't know would you be on for that one? Yeah I mean as I said I love all our songs and that that song is special to me I mean to me it's very ungarbage sounding I mean it's, the, it's definitely the, probably the poppiest song we've ever written um, we sped up my vocals to sort of be reminiscent of old 80s sort of Madonna um, and the subject matter was inspired by a, a writing correspondence I enjoyed mm -hmm. with, with JT Leroy who was this um, woman masquerading as a young teenage boy in order to get her books published and then she was revealed by the New York Times to be in their words kind of like a hoax but in fact I don't really see it that way I chose to see it much differently I mean women have often posed as men in order to get their work taken seriously and mm -hmm. so I just saw JT Leroy as a vehicle by which a woman could beat the system so I'm, I'm I love you know uh, the writing by Laura Albert who is in fact the actual writer behind yeah. these books and um, and this song reminds me of a period in my life where we enjoyed this really intense correspondence and I was very inspired by by her books and her sort of examination of, of transgender and gender fluidity and so on and so forth so this song deals with some heavy you know, material, but it's done in a really tongue-in-cheek way.
Tulips there from Garbage. And of course, that was selected for us by Shirley Manson from the band. Shirley, we won't keep you too much longer. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Before we finish up, I I would like to ask just a tiny bit about, uh, I suppose, your response to the Me Too movement and the new wave of feminism that's kicking in through social media and the increased consciousness that people have. Like you were one of the kind of early female, I suppose, inspirations for a lot of young women out there, people that might have decided to pick up a a guitar or go and join a band because they saw you on MTV back in the 90s. And now things have taken another turn. And do you think things are getting better for women? You know, I think that's a really complicated question. I mean, is my life better than my grandmother's or my mother's? Absolutely. You know, unfortunately, however, there's a whole, you know, underclass of women, often black or or coloured or Muslim women, African women who are not enjoying any form of liberation whatsoever. Mm. I laugh just out of nervousness, not, not because I find it remotely funny. I think, you know, white feminists have to really remember, too, that, that we are fighting for all women. We're fighting for trans women. And I feel like things are pretty bad, you know, right now for a lot of women all over the globe, whether you're a woman in Poland who can't get an abortion, whether you're getting prosecuted for having a miscarriage in South America. I mean, there's, there's dreadful things going on. I know Ireland has its own battles you know, things are slowly changing and, and that's wonderful. I mean, I've never been afraid of saying I am pro-choice, I am pro-woman, I'm, I also love my fellow man, but things are not right and they have to change until we have equal representation, equal opportunity, and we kill the statistics, the shocking statistics surrounding violence towards women, domestic violence and sexual violence. I think governments really need to start getting very serious about uh, investing in the examination of why this continues, why men continue to put their hands on women. And I think a lot of it's social conditioning. I think a lot of it's education. I don't, from the life of me, ever believe that, you know, a baby boy is born, you know, with, with malice. I think it's something they learn. And we need to examine it urgently. Governments need to get serious about protecting their female populace. As a final question to you, you've been through a lot in your life. You've made an impression on so many people. You can play on stage to thousands and you can act, as we were talking about. Um, But are you in a happy place now? Are you in a good place? I think there's far too much made (laughs) of the concept of happiness. You know, I don't even know exactly what happiness is half the time. Do I feel... Like, I have a good life, yeah. Do, um, have I got an amazing family? I love them to, to death. Um, I know I've been incredibly fortunate. Now, is that happiness? I'm not entirely sure. I have a wonderful career, a great band, um, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, I often have struggles with feeling contentment or feeling this illusion of happiness that we're all sort of taught to believe we should be feeling at at any given moment. I think it's okay to feel melancholy. I think it's okay to feel frustrated and sometimes sad. I wish there was a more more expression in our culture of so-called, in inverted commas, negative feelings. I think negative feelings and negative sensations and emotions are part of being human. It's part of exploring who we are and how to understand the world in which we find ourselves. So... 
I can't really answer that question with any real certainty well, <laughs> other you, than I know I'm fortunate. Yeah, well, you said I'm something grateful. a while back. Um, you were talking about another band that you liked and you just said that you liked them because they pushed against the norm. And then you said when people push against the norm, it allows other people to be themselves. And in a way, that's the whole point of indie rock or alternative rock, if you like, that the craziness expressed in the form and the sense of difference makes people who love it feel a bit more free or unconstricted. So I don't know if that counts as happiness, but it's certainly something you've given to tons of people. So that's good. Yeah. Well, that is maybe the nicest thing anyone's going to say to me all week. So thank you so much. <laughs> You're well, listen, Shirley, we've got one more track to play um, and I know you've a few left here, so we could go to the Cocteau Twins or... Let's go to the Cocteau Twins. You cannot possibly go wrong. I mean, talking about a sort of melancholy space, you know, in which you can explore your own sort of sadnesses, I always go to the Cocteau Twins because I find it uplifting. It's, it's both tragic and joyful. And that, to me, are the extremities in which we all exist, and I'm into that. The Cocteau Twins there. The final selection from Shirley Manson of Garbage on my route to showing with myself, Nadine O'Regan. Thank you very much to Shirley Manson and thank you to you for listening to this podcast. If you're wondering about future podcasts, well, I will say the opportunity to do this particular one and to do this interview with Shirley came up and I grabbed it with both hands and I was delighted to do it. At the moment, I am just dipping my little toe into the podcasting world, but I do hope there will be more podcasts in the future. If you'd like to check out what I'm up to and what's coming next, do go to my Twitter page, at Nadine O'Regan, that's N-A-D-I-N-E-O-R-E-G-A-N. And thank you once again for checking out this podcast. Till the next time, do take care. Music, a combination of sounds with a view to beauty of form and expression of emotion.